there are just so many things that we need to discuss about. And probably the best thing to do is to dive right into the playbook for this year. And probably the best part to start with is to highlight about how all models have effectively become unrailed. And that's because the primary inputs of a lot of financial models, a lot of forecasts, are predicated on consumption, demand, revenue, and cash flows. When you take that out of the equation, basically a whole bunch of analysts are effectively rendered useless. Now, this might sound like a risk to many people, but the good news is that it's a risk to the establishment. Now, if you're not necessarily entrenched into the system, well, this presents a great equalizer of an opportunity. Now, there's so many uh, pseudo arco capitalists that discuss about their ideas and provide a, like a lot of thought leadership. There's a lot of gold bugs that do the same thing. We'll talk more about them too. The issue though is that you now have a scenario in which there's a sense of variability in terms of what was previously predictable by the establishment. The key thing I would highlight though to all the listeners is that who's actually providing you that playbook? Who's providing you the forward trajectory towards where everything is going to go? As opposed to kind of like highlighting to the audience about like doom and gloom, for example, but not really providing a remedy towards how are you going to address that? That's why this is such an interesting time to me. I think that basically when you take all of those key input variables that go into some kind of financial model, some kind of financial assumption, some kind of uh, re-examination towards what this net present value of a particular asset could be, or, you know, how are you going to discount no cash flows as opposed to just discounting cash flows? This is the opportunity for the true technocrat that has kind of like a, a multidisciplinary view towards the macro and how it relates to the micro and then vice versa. And then having someone that actually can think about what it would be like to deal with a situation of no demand. I think that that's, I think that there's elements within the value chain of the economy that there's people with expertise in all of these elements. But the thing is this, is that who is basically combining all of this background and knowledge and then ultimately providing some sense of trajectory of where we're going to go. And I think that if you start to take a look towards how I was kind of like executing a lot of these trades and how I was thinking about the impact of many uh, different variables into the economy and into the stock market, into in particular like stocks and sectors, then there has never been such a time for that to have manifested all into this very important time in history. So I, I wanted to just start off with the kind of saying that you can now kind of see that if your data 
that you're inputting towards various different forecasts are not aligned to the true nature of reality. And the true nature of reality implies a total shutdown or lockdown of the global economy. There's still going to be pockets that are going to do well, and there's going to be pockets that are going to do awful. And how are you going to build positions towards various different tops and historical bottoms like the one that I called on late March in order to be able to try to build some kind of positions for your portfolio and actually hedge yourself from the true risk, which is strictly being kind of like a general participant in the system itself. So I wanted to leave you with with those kind of thoughts uh, first and foremost. So let's jump to another subject. So the next subject I like to talk about is the risk curve. Now, what I'm observing many people do is they're unnecessarily going up the risk curve. And that's not necessary because there's still a lot of uncertainty in the market. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that you could trade your grandma's portfolio right now and treat it as if it is arguably um, the highest beta, highest risk asset class for the time being. And there's a lot of good elements towards that. So in theory, what would be in your grandma's portfolio? Probably bonds, for example. You can treat that like an asset that has the potential for still a lot of upside. And the great news is that more than likely, you'll be able to utilize a lot of leverage towards some of those positions. And what's more important is that these assets right now that are low risk because they would be in one's grandma's portfolio are also extremely low beta. But what you can observe when you're taking a look at the tape is that low beta seems to be working in this instance. For example, the large caps, at least the quality large caps, for example, particularly consumer staples in this instance, uh, treasury bills, and high quality currencies. Now, on any given down day that you've seen over the last several weeks and several months and for most of the year, you would have seen that these down days, the kind of assets that I've mentioned have held up very well. On top of that, there's going to be another segment, which are companies and sectors that strive in this corona economy that we live in. So those are kind of like the two major themes that are working, right? It's the boring stuff, the low beta stuff. And then it's like new economy stocks that are doing extremely well. Now, the great news is even within the new economy segments, they're like, for example, tech stocks like the likes of Netflix. They're not exactly small companies. In fact, they're extremely big ones. And they might have a little bit of a kicker of beta. But what you'll see is that on down days, they hold up quite well. And perhaps their beta might gradually 
erode slightly, and it might be strictly driven by key drivers and catalysts that will bolster these companies to higher tiers and higher valuations. So you probably want to take that into consideration. There's no necessity for anyone right now to go higher up on the risk curve. A great example of what would be perceived as higher up on the risk curve is to identify companies that are basically in line with the benchmark index. And obviously what would be worse than that are ones that are underperforming the benchmark index because you are so geared towards the thesis that we may have put in a historical bottom or that the entire global economy is going to lift off flawlessly. Now, it's not that I'm against that idea in any shape or form, but for one to say or one to have the hubris to assume that that is without a shadow of doubt going to happen is slightly hubris. So in my instance, in late March, if I'm calling a historical bottom, and it ends up turning to fruition. There are times that you're going to teeter-totter into, you know, the benchmark indices. But clearly, even within like the majors, you're going to see like an outperformance on the NASDAQ, for example. But it's probably not what you want to really just always be in. You want to you want to basically be a stock picker in this instance because there, there's going to be companies that are com- going to perform extremely well. So let's talk about a few interesting assets. Everyone's favorite is probably gold, right? Gold's up year to date. Everyone's enthused about it. And everyone's enthused about, frankly, what you're seeing on your screen and what I'm seeing on the screen, which is so much underperformance. Underperformance from a perspective of, was this not supposed to be the worst case scenario ever for gold? Like, I think it was, right? You have unlimited stimulus, probably the most in human history, even if you adjust for inflation. And you've had effectively a shutdown of the global economy. And this is the most that gold could muster. That's highly concerning. Now, I'm sure some of you guys are in mining stocks and stuff like that. And, you know, all the power to you. But the truth is, we're all not using gold at this time, are we? In fact, we're making a claim that it's a store of wealth. But if you're already doing that, then... I would argue that there would have to be, you'd have to even go lower and lower. There's only a few more, by the way, on the risk curve. And those things would have to have real issues before people start thinking about gold again in the context of this new or old case for gold, which is like a $5,000 an ounce gold. Now you can also see, let's talk about this infamous gold and silver ratio. Well, clearly you've seen silver has underperformed because it is higher up on the risk curve. It's higher beta, probably attracts more speculative money, and therefore it's performing the way that it is. So even within the realm of precious metals, we have tiers here. 
effectively you got poor man's gold that's underperforming because it is higher up on the risk curve. Now, assuming that you believe that this precious metal story is going to work for you, uh, particularly in poor man's gold, it actually implies that you're looking for a global recovery in order to see that spec money come in. Now, you know, there's going to be phases to this, right? You're going to have spec money come in, you're going to have spec money come out, you're going to have a collapse and you're going to have like, let's say like, you know, uh, the buy and holds or, you know, the physical guys, that's, that's how they're going to refer to gold, right? Fine. The whole point is that there still needs to be so many more phases as you can already envision before you actually can see this new case for gold or a case for gold with substantial relative outperformance. Frankly, I'd rather be watching Netflix or streaming content at this time than holding on to my gold because it can't really do anything for me. And you can make a case that I really need my consumer staples and my toilet paper as opposed to having gold. I'd rather, basically, I'd rather be hoarding toilet paper than I'd be hoarding gold. And therefore, that's why some of these consumer staples are making all-time highs. That's why I am a big proponent of companies like Johnson & Johnson with their diverse portfolio, their ability to hike up their dividends at this time. And I'm really keen on Nestle's recent quarterly earnings that give me at least a reason to put that on my watch list as it attempts to make all-time highs as well. These companies will outperform gold in this situation until we can get to more fractures within this risk curve, forcing us to go even lower and lower as spec money comes out, you know, the physical guys really make their strong case. You know, states, particularly with higher credit ratings, start to really implode. Fine, there's your gold story. But at most, probably what you'll end up seeing is you'll see how the developed world has absorbed all this stimulus and how maybe you'll find corporate defaults and you'll find some emerging market defaults, but not substantial enough to really impact basically the global economic system. Because probably now that you've encroached the global economic system with dollars, that the system doesn't live without dollars. And newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, it has become that much bigger. Or the global banking system has become that much bigger. So any case that was to be made that things are going to implode, that case, you could argue, has actually reduced in size relative to the amount of dollars that people need. And that could be anywhere between 12 or 21 trillion net deficit in US dollars the world over. 
in order for this global economy to function now that the Fed has bailed out America and opened repo windows to its friends and allies. That will be a very interesting discussion to discuss about going forward throughout the rest of the year and is probably the primary cause on why you are kind of seeing elements of commodity deflation and other asset price deflation because all of this stimulus has been held up so well to the appropriate institutions that it needs to go to. And here you are with your mini bailout check or even your small business loan. So let's talk about something else besides gold. And that will be something we'll talk about more going forward in the future. But let's talk about some interesting companies. We can discuss about NVIDIA a little bit. Uh, NVIDIA has earnings that are coming out later in May. They're making GPUs. There's going to be an interesting moment in for the crypto watchers in which Bitcoin will have. Now, historically, GPUs have been used to mine things like Bitcoin. That's less of the case now, although GPUs are still used in other cryptocurrency mining. So I think that when I don't want to go up the risk curve onto something like Bitcoin, for example, I think about you know, proxies, or sometimes proxies of proxies that give me what I need, which is I need my GPUs for video games, and I need companies that are in the process of capturing more benefits towards smart grids and smart networks, which NVIDIA is doing. On the cusp of making all-time highs while everyone's at home playing video games, just like everyone at home streaming content, which is why I like Netflix so much and why I like Take-Two so much. So you're playing video games, you're using hardware to do so. You can definitely check a sub-segment towards, you know, consumer electronics spending. I'm sure you'd be quite pleased with those figures as opposed to just the overall retail space, which is getting hammered. You will also observe that Consumer electronics by many countries, particularly here in Asia, was labeled as an essential. So many of those businesses were open throughout this whole time, which even fostered greater demand because people had nothing else to do or people needed to upgrade their electronics so that they could work at home or go on to Zoom. I thought that was very interesting to note as well. I think in the United States it's different, uh, although through online ordering, that's very much possible. Let's have a conversation about some really great strategic investments that I'm looking at right now. I I wish maybe I had discussed with everyone as early as this year, even about this whole Corona pandemic, but you know, we could kind of bypass that. I'm sure you can get that from all your typical news sources, but let's talk about some real investment ideas here. So, We understand that there's going to be a lot of variables towards opening up the economy. 
Now, again, I just need you to put on your pragmatist hat here. Um, we understand that most of the world is shut down, but there's actually two really interesting economies that are open and two economies that were always attractive to begin with. But perhaps if you never had the last decade and opportunity because there were so many other opportunity costs to think about building a position into these two countries, I would encourage one to take deep consideration to do so. Although understanding the cardinal rule that one should not invest into the benchmark index of these countries because effectively you have a nice mix. It's diversified, right? That's what you would want in a atypical economy. But unfortunately, we don't live in atypical times. We live in extremely interesting times, although the state has done an extremely well job in identifying to you by indicating what's essential or non-essential. So what you want to identify is countries that are open. In this case, my two favorite are Sweden and Taiwan. And what are the essentials in these countries, not the benchmark index, which is loaded with multinational players, but the essentials in order to capture a long-term investment in. The thesis is very simple. We need to think about how this pandemic is gonna roll through the entire global economy. And we need to understand that the be all and end all for everyone appears to be this flattening of the curve. Now, in Asia, which is where Taiwan is located in, and Sweden, which is Scandinavia and Europe, a case can be made that there are signs for many of the regional counterparts and in these domestic economies that a flattening of the curve has already happened. Why is this so vital? It proves the strategy. Perhaps herd immunity in these very unique economies have allowed these countries to just kind of like ride out this pandemic. Now with a flattening curve, domestically being open the entire time. So while the likes of a big retailer may be closed, these guys, these countries, with their economies open the whole time, never ever really experienced that much disruption in terms of their revenues and their sales. Now, as things begin to pick up and as these countries start to inject more stimulus, then you're gonna see these companies benefit even more. And at that stage, maybe once things really pick up, you could even think about these countries in terms of their multinationals. Remember, Stimulus is only important, particularly 
in the instance of the consumer, if the consumer is able to actually spend. Now, these countries have implemented stimulus throughout their greater economies while their consumer has been spending, not only online, but also offline, brick and mortar. And therefore, the earnings of many of these essential players look fantastic. And some of them went along the lines of how the entire global markets went down. But many of them achieved that V shape, which a lot of people talk about. And one could make a case that they won't see any kind of U-turn on that V shape. Therefore, executing what could be from an investment standpoint, one of the great timely entries one could ever have possibly made. And and while you're waiting for everything to open up, you could just hold your longs into these countries. I think many portfolio managers are not thinking about this because of the fact that I think it requires a sense of open-mindedness that many people don't have. Why? Because this is a virus and it's hurting a lot of people. And it's something that everyone is experiencing on, on their own. And maybe a lot of these portfolio managers are locked down. And maybe some of them fundamentally agree with a lockdown. So therefore, how could anyone be open-minded enough to say, hypothetically, you know, what if we were just open this whole time? Which some people do discuss about. But that's all theory. We have working samples of this. Imagine owning a convenience store in one of these countries. They would tell you business is better than ever. And therefore, there are a lot of investments to be made as opposed to trades that could be multi-year positions at least based on this corona pandemic which has become a catalyst for these open economies definitely essential in your portfolio the last segment i want to discuss about is kind of like the remainder of the year and how I could see this working out. So let's start with probably the key date here in my mind, which is this election. The lead up to this election will consist of a lot of window dressing. There will be discussion of further tax cuts And there will be discussions about infrastructure spending. It would be fair to say that the current administration, which is so eager to open up the economy and start to implement these window dressing tactics, will present a very interesting 
long equities or risk on aspects. Now, what's interesting is how, how this election is going to turn out. In the instance that the incumbents wins the election, one could envision a post-election rally, maybe all the way up to year-end. Now, in the instance that the other party wins, then you could see some kind of potential pullback because you're comparing the precedence of what the administration had did in 2016-2017 relative to an unknown variable or a known variable to, to some extent about what could be done at least for the economy and more in particularly for the stock market. Now, all is not well, though. Remember, a lot of the companies that got these bailouts and stimulus have now signed agreements that indicate that they will not execute in share buybacks for at least a duration of 12 to 24 months. Now, this is such a vital element to be aware of because if you think about dividends and share buybacks, which is called shareholder yield, you can see that this has contributed up to sometimes up to 90% of shareholder total return for stocks in the stock market. Now, the question is, what will happen if you can't do that? Well, I believe that post the election, we're going to find that out. And not only are we going to find that out, we're going to see an abundance of emerging market defaults. And we're going to see a lot of corporate defaults. Again, higher up the risk curve. Notice that. And I would want to leave everyone on a final thought, which is kind of like how we all ended up here to begin with. Earlier, I just mentioned that, you know, between, let's say, 70 to 90% of total shareholder returns are predicated on buybacks and dividends. And that a majority of stimulus or debt by many of these companies was to use to buy back shares. Well, that kind of effectively explains the last decade, doesn't it? It explained how common stock became preferred shares. Because basically preferred shares are a hybrid of common stock and debt. So the question is, what happens if you use debt to buy common stock? You lower volatility. Now, how are the debt obligations fulfilled for both shareholders and for the people that these companies are borrowing from? 
They're fulfilled by the cash flows of the operation. Now, what happens if some of these businesses have no cash flows? You still have a potential lingering systemic risk that could happen if it weren't for additional bailouts. So therefore, this will be probably one of the most interesting 24 months as in like the start of this year and even going into next year towards highlighting like this trajectory of what this new economy is going to look like, even post-election, irrespective of policies that are made. There's going to be a lot of starts and restarts, restarts, obviously, as we've seen in terms of China. And that's something that the whole world is going to experience. A lot of skeletons are going to come out of the closet. And then there's going to, it's going to be papered over by this V or U-shaped recovery all at the same time. So we'll talk more in the not-too-distant future. This is Peter Pham, and welcome to the new economy. Amen to that.